Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, today I am joined by very special guests, uh, Christine Dorchak and Carrie Teal. And uh, they are the author- authors of the brand new book, uh, Brooklyn Goes Home, The Rise and Fall of American Greyhound Racing and the Dog That Inspired a Movement. Uh, so welcome, uh, Carrie and Christine. Thank you. Uh, so uh, it, it, this is a sort of, uh, uh, you know, an interesting topic compared to what I've, you know, talked about on the podcast before. Uh, typically, we're talking, to, uh, you know, sanctuaries and zoos and uh, and sort of around those topics. Um, you know, this is more, uh, you know, part of a personal one for me because I have a greyhound and I, I think it's uh, super interesting the work that you guys are, are doing and have done and and the book is uh, is fantastic. But, uh, you know, some of the... Um, <clears throat> the lobbying and the, and the legislative work and, and the work that you guys have done, uh, both, you know, in the book and are continuing to do, I think is very relevant for a lot of the, um, you know, uh, issues that, uh, you know, most modern accredited zoos are, are fighting to, uh, to change. And I think the model that you sort of laid out here and that we'll talk about is, is very relevant to the people listening. So, uh, I appreciate, uh, your time and, and, uh, I'm excited to, to chat to you both. Uh, do we want to start off with, uh, you know, a brief, uh, introduction, uh, to, to both of you and get an idea of your, your backgrounds, uh, Carrie, do you, do you want to start? Sure. The, absolutely. So I'm the executive director of Great CK USA, and I'm really grateful to be on with you today. Um, I've been doing this work for almost a quarter century with Christine. We both co-founded Great CK USA and, uh, you know, I'm also a, a national master in chess. Um, I've done a lot of, I, I lead a lot of our political work. Um, so I, I've testified in state legislatures all over the country. Um, you could say that, you know, both of us are really, you know, lobbyists for dogs, um, which is a pretty unique thing. Um, but we've, yeah, we've we've been very, very blessed to, to do this work uh, over the past quarter century. It's, it's something that is, you know, truly uh, a mission for us. Um, and uh, glad to be here today to tell you about uh, the story of, of both our work and Brooklyn, this incredible dog that we rescued. So I'm Christine Dorchak. I'm the co-founder with Carrie of Great GK USA Worldwide. I serve as our president and general counsel, and that means I'm a dog lawyer, which is what I went to school to be. Um, I intentionally went to law school so that the greyhounds could be represented because the greyhounds are political animals in, in every way. And that's what we've learned along the way to address the problems associated with dog racing through the political process. And the inspiration for our work all these years had been Brooklyn, our beautiful white and brown spotted greyhound from Australia. That, that's uh, fantastic. And uh, yeah, you guys have both super unique backgrounds that I think uh, have obviously lended themselves very well to, to your work. Uh, do you want to sort of give us an idea of what uh, Gray 2K USA Worldwide is and, and, and what you guys focus on? And maybe we can uh, you know, start by talking a little bit about Brooklyn as well. 
Sure. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, we're, a we're a nonprofit uh, that works nationally and internationally to pass greyhound protection laws, uh, phase out greyhound racing where possible, and support uh, greyhound adoption. We're not an adoption organization ourselves, but we fund adoption, promote adoption. So we, we are essentially a, a public policy organization working to improve the lives of these dogs. And, you know, greyhound racing was once a, a large, powerful industry. Um, you know, it was the sixth largest spectator sport in the United States at one point. Uh, with you know a, a more than three billion dollars wagered and um, about 70 operational racetracks in in 19 states, uh, the animal welfare community had very serious concerns about greyhound racing, um, which we can, we can talk about. Um, but uh, and as a result of those concerns, we saw a grassroots movement which which we helped lead over the last 25 years, which essentially has brought greyhound racing to uh, the verge of no longer existing in the United States. Um, so we, you know, I think that's helped a, a huge number of dogs. I, I also think it is uh, a step forward for uh, animal welfare in general, and uh, it, you know, something we're very proud of. So that's that's what we do, and and uh, and uh, our work. I'll let Christine talk about about Brooklyn, but I, I will just say that in terms of of the book. Uh, you know, it really is the strange story of how a group of ordinary dog lovers fought a multi-billion dollar gambling industry and won. Um, it may be proving along the way that politics can still be a force for good. So um, that's that's why we felt a need to uh, take this history and and uh, you know put it into book form, and hopefully people will, will read it and uh, and take something from that that experience. You know, when we first began, uh, we wanted to solve the problem in our own backyard. There were two Greyhound tracks in our home state of Massachusetts where thousands of dogs were suffering and dying and nobody was doing anything about it. So a number of folks like me got together and said, we're going we're gonna to close those tracks down. Now, we had no idea how to write a law, how to get on the ballot, how we were supposed to act as a political committee, but we formed one and we collected all the signatures by hand and we got on the ballot and we lost. <laughs> and out of that loss, we decided that we were gonna keep trying because the loss was so close, 51-49. And we'd been outspent five to one. And this told us that there was the kernel of success in there and we could help the Greyhounds and we shouldn't give up. And not only would we end dog racing in Massachusetts, but we'd work nationwide. And since that time, um, we've become an international organization and we've joined hands with groups around the world who are fighting to end the cruelty of dog racing in countries as, such as Australia, United Kingdom. And it's just become this worldwide effort now. And it's just everyday people coming together and trying to make a difference for the dogs. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, uh, do you want to sort of talk a little bit about uh, about Brooklyn? Sure. So, you know, Brooklyn uh, really is, and what's an incredible story, I, I think his part of it is maybe the most incredible aspect of all. Um, he was born uh, 
in New South Wales, Australia on a greyhound breeding farm. He, uh, neither of his parents had been uh, profitable racers. They were chasing one particular bloodline of a former champion. Uh, Brooklyn raced uh, for a very short period of time, uh, made essentially no prize money, and then was shipped off to a dog track uh, in China called the Macau Canadrome, which at the time was the only legal dog track in China. This was the worst dog track in the world. Uh, they, every month they would bring in 30 greyhounds from Australia and every month 30 greyhounds would be killed. There was no greyhound adoption. There were no animal welfare standards at all. The dogs were kept in cement cells, um, just really abominable um, situation for him and all of the dogs. One of our board members visited the track uh, when Brooklyn was just a young dog when he was three years old and took a series of photographs. And one of the photos was of this one particular dog. And it was this incredibly striking photo. And we attempted to find out who was this dog. Does the dog, you know, this dog had a name, where did he come from? And all we had to go on was on the collar were three letters, L-Y-N. And we looked at all of the dogs that were at the track at the time, and we guessed that it was this dog named Brooklyn. And we then proceeded to, uh, and Christine led this effort for us, we, we had a long, years-long campaign to convince the government to shutter the track. Um, that did eventually succeed, but it took many, many years. Uh, all, all along the way, Brooklyn, he was no longer racing. We assumed he was probably dead. Um, when we finally won and the government agreed to, to shutter the track, our ally, Albano Martins, went in and started looking at all the dogs. And uh, there were more than 500 dogs at the facility, which Christine uh, and others led uh, a, a campaign to airlift all of them to homes uh, all over the world. And incredibly, Brooklyn was still there and still alive. Um, wow. He had spent about seven years in that concrete cell. He was essentially a prisoner that had committed no crime. So uh, when Christine led this effort to bring these dogs home, Brooklyn came home to us, um, which was, I'll, I'll, I'll let her tell the rest of the story, which is really the, the, uh, the, the beautiful part of it, I think. But, um, uh, you know, coming home to us was really just the beginning of of Brooklyn's journey. Do you want to, Christine? Well, the, you know, the history of the Close the Canadrome campaign is a great example of um, having courage to take on a campaign that few think can be won. Um, when our board member sent us that photo, those, I was immediately struck by this dog. And I said, we're gonna save this dog and we're gonna close that track. I've never heard of a track in the world where there's no adoption. This is an outrage. And we were in a one room office as we are today, but back in those days, we were even in a basement. So hmm. we were very humble. And I said to Carrie, we're gonna shut this place down. And Carrie said, how are we gonna do that from a one room basement office in Somerville, Massachusetts? I said, I don't know, but we are. And uh, we did, um, we, we formed alliances with groups around the world who pledged to take the dogs if we could close the track. So it was a very intentional, very structured. We flew to Macau, we met with officials um, and we made the case that greyhound racing was a negative 
in terms of the reputation of Macau and of China. And reputation is very important in Asian countries. So this really struck home. And it was at that meeting that the mayor of Macau came up to me and to Albano, our board member, and said, I will help you. And that was just such a wonderful, wonderful moment in my life. I knew that we were going to get those dogs out, but I could not dream that Brooklyn was still there. But what do you know, he was. And um, when we brought him here, I checked his ear tattoos because, you know, these are these dogs are like prisoners. They have numbers in their ears to document their racing number, their, their, when they're born, the order of their birth. And um, it was Brooklyn, the, the numbers matched. And uh, it, was, it was an incredible moment for me. It took a real leap of faith to try to wage this campaign. And a lot of people doubted us and said, oh, they're just going to kill the dogs. And I said, well, if that's the case, the killing's going to stop when the track closes because there will be no more new victims at a minimum. Thousands and thousands of dogs had died at this terrible place. Mm -hmm. So I was practical in that sense, but I had a hope and a belief that we would get those dogs out. And we did. Um, so Brooklyn came home to us and um, he was one of the happiest no matter what happened, he was he was such a wonderful dog to be around, and everyone who met him was entranced by his eyes. And we learned so much about forgiveness from this dog, having lived in a concrete cell for eight years, being released, and then coming home to us and facing numerous medical problems. He kept, just kept going on um, to the very end. He was just a wonderful, wonderful dog. And his fighting spirit is what lives in me today. Yeah, wow. That's uh, an amazing story. Um, I, I would I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, like the actual racing industry itself because, uh, you know, and, and in the zoo industry, we sort of run into this scenario a lot where people have an idea of what they feel like an animal should be doing and what, you know, they, they feel like, you know, the natural history of that animal is. Uh, and then when they actually are interacting with the animal, they realize that that's not necessarily the case because on paper, you know, you look at the greyhound industry, you look at greyhounds, they're, they're these big jacked, fast dogs. And you, you'd think this would be the, this would be heaven for them. They're running, they're chasing a little fake rabbit around a ring. Like what, what about the industry is, is so terrible. Obviously the, the track in Macau sounds uh, pretty horrendous. What are, What's the, uh, the industry as a whole look like? You know, Kyle, I, I think uh, we're living through a time when the welfare of animals is ascendant. And, you know, that popular support for uh, public support for doing better uh, by our animal friends is, you know, reverberating throughout our society and touching all of these industries. And I think what what distinguishes um, the greyhound racing industry, even from the horse racing industry, mm. to, to to use that example, is you know the horse racing industry, and and, and I, I'm certainly not not endorsing or promoting the horse racing industry in any way, but as a matter of fact, the horse racing industry has gone through you know tremendous mm -hmm. reform and change just in the past couple of decades. Um, the, the greyhound racing industry essentially operated 
like a depression era relic of an industry that still thought it was 1935. I mean, it it just, you know, with, with this, with the singular exception of adoption, um, the greyhound racing industry today operates the way it did a century ago, uh, effectively. Um, you know, the dogs endure lives of confinement, kept in warehouse-style kennels and rows of stack cages for you know 22 hours a day. All female greyhounds are given an anabolic steroid called methyl testosterone to prevent the dogs from coming into heat and prevent a loss of race days. Uh, we see all sorts of other greyhound drug positives from cocaine to, uh, in New Zealand, we've seen a bunch of uh, methamphetamine positives in greyhounds. Um, you know, a lot of dogs still to this day across the world are killed just because they're either cold as, as young dogs or uh, when they're no longer profitable, they are, uh, you know, killed at the, at, uh, on the back end of their racing careers. Um, and the injuries, uh, you know, we, we've, in West Virginia, where the final two dog tracks in the United States exist, uh, we're seeing about 700 greyhound injuries a year. Um, and, you know, dogs, most of those are the most common injury, I should say, is a dog suffering a broken leg, but we also see dogs suffering broken necks, uh, paralysis called FCE, which is something that Brooklyn had. And and um, it, it's it's just, it's just not a great industry. And, and it's an industry that's been very recal recalcitrant to change. You know, while, while, while the rest of our world has sort of, you know, I mean, I think your work is a great example of this, you know, as, as the rest of the world is, is, you know, learning, you know, how, how to be better in this way, the greyhound racing industry really hasn't, it's mm -hmm. sort of been left behind. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, a big part of the issue. The, the, the way I would put it is if, if a neighbor came in today and said, well, I'm going to move in next to you. I'm going to bring in a thousand dogs. Uh, they're going to live in 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 rows of stacked metal cages for most of their lives. I'm going to give the female greyhounds anabolic steroids. The dogs and test positive for drugs, and I'm going to race them around a track so people can gamble on them. And dogs are going to suffer broken legs and die. No one would be okay with that. Yeah. Um, which is why you know we see you know really uh, w whether it's in you know, left-leaning states, right-leaning states, or even overseas, um, we see, you know, uh, majority opposition to greyhound racing really everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, I also just want to say it's, this is something that crosses, um, you know, it's not, a, it's support crosses gender lines, crosses ideology, it crosses, I mean, we, we, we see uniform concern for these dogs and support for either reform or efforts to phase out the industry basically everywhere. Um, but, you know, even with that, it, it, it is work to, to bring about change. It, it's, you know, change isn't self-executing. And I, I think one of the things that has made our work, our work unique is we have paired a commitment to do better by these dogs and, and a very, a very deep, um, you know, mission-driven perspective with um, a desire and an ability to actually bring about change, um, which, you know, people still feel so frustrated. I know with our politics today, it seems like nothing works. Mm -hmm. Everything is broken and, and dysfunctional. Um, I think our story does prove that at least some of the time, our democracy can work mm -hmm. and you can bring about change. Um, it's a lot of work and you have to go through a lot of 
you have to be, be, be ready to lose a lot for that to happen and be willing to get knocked down and get back up again, but um, it is possible. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. And, and, you know, just from a, uh, like a sort of personal standpoint, I feel like uh, people have a, have a, a misinterpretation of what a greyhound actually is because they're one of those dog breeds that are like so physically, it's so physically obvious, like what they were bred for, like every single aspect of their body is made to just go fast. But it, everybody that has owned a, a greyhound like knows that couldn't be less uh, like they are so far from an athlete. Uh, like it, it's they're like, my dog is the laziest dog I've ever had. And she loves going walks, loves to run. But like the thought of her sitting in a, in a concrete pen and being, and running every day and, and being put like treated as an athlete is, is absolutely insane to me. And I'm sure, you know, you both feel the same way. It's, it's such a misunderstanding as far as what the dog is actually wants to do. It wants to sit on the couch for 23 hours a day and it wants to go on a couple walks and maybe chase a squirrel. That's the ideal Greyhound day. <laughs> I feel like you've answered your own question, Kyle. Mm-hmm. They, you know, these dogs, they love to run. They don't need to race. Yeah. Put money at an animal pitted against one another. One one day, the animal's not going to earn his keep. Mm-hmm. And because this is uh, an industry that simply disposes of dogs that are unwanted, even pups that seem to be unpromising, so many thousands of dogs suffer the consequences mm-hmm. of this pursuit of money. Um, and it's true that uh, they're among the fastest animals on earth. But as you're pointing out, they're 45 mile an hour couch potatoes. Mm-hmm. They're they're very lax. I like to say they're like giant cats. Yeah, so absolutely. They're just so serene and so cool. And um, the idea that someone would say, well, that's, that's great, but I can make some money off of this. And this is what it's going to be about. And these dogs they stay in those cages day after day Mm -hmm. the only race a few times a month they don't race every day um there are rules against that um and they give the dog some rest however um most of their lives are spent in those terrible cages and they're not taken on walks like you and i would take Mm -hmm. a dog on a walk and a broken toe can be a death sentence because a dog with a broken toe is not a worthwhile runner Um, that dog's got to go. So thankfully, here in the United States, um, a lot of the cruelty of greyhound racing was exposed starting in the late 1980s. And the industry realized it had a problem on its hands. So it formed its own network of greyhound adoption groups, which we applaud. Mm. Um, Absolutely. Um, The problem is that dogs are going to be disposed of when they're on the farm, and nobody will even know about it because uh, a litter could be 10 to 12 dogs. You don't see 10 to 12 dogs coming out of uh, out of each litter uh, with a racing number. They don't mm-hmm. end up at the track. Um, then they can get injured or they, they could actually die of other, other problems because of the conditions at the kennels. You've heard of kennel cough. We've mm-hmm. seen dogs you know, die uh, as a result of kennel cough outbreaks. And imagine the confinement of having 100 dogs in one kennel. Um, it takes about a thousand dogs for any given track to operate. So the numerosity of it uh, shows you the amount of cruelty involved in this industrialization of dogs. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, yeah, I think it, it, it's, you guys raised some excellent points and I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's definitely like parallel to a lot of the animal welfare concerns that are going on, not just, you know, uh, in North America, but, you know, globally. And I think, uh, you know, yeah, whenever you're mixing, you know, human greed with animal welfare, like it's, it's very hard to sort of reconcile the two of those things. So, um, <clears throat> I think it's problems can seem very big. So yeah. one thing we've learned, um, is to break down the problem into parts and address the parts. So for instance, we might start a campaign in a state not to prohibit dog racing, but instead to, uh, put in place humane protections under the law for the dogs. Um, we've done ballot questions just for that purpose in Florida. Uh, before we brought the petition, which went on the state ballot in 2018, to actually outlaw dog racing. In other states, we have gone and uh, put in other protections for the dogs because the more we can help the dogs along the way, the better. And we don't see that as interfering with our ultimate goal of ending dog racing. In fact, when we have to bring a bill to, you know, about the drug testing of greyhounds in a particular state, I think that exposes the industry for mm -hmm. what's happening to the dogs. Um, so that's been part of our strategy to take a problem of greyhound racing, break it down into its component parts and address those in, in, in step, step by step. And the problem um, becomes more solvable in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I would love to talk about the actual process here because, uh, you know, we're talking about lobbying and, and, and getting involved in, in legislation. And I feel like people hear the term lobbying, but they don't actually really understand. Uh, they're maybe like me and they get most of their sort of lobbying knowledge from watching house of cards or something like that. So <laughs> I, I would love to hear, you know, what, what a lobbyist actually does and what the function they serve uh, as it as it pertains to, you know, lawmaking and change. Well, it's, you know, look, th there are discussions happening regarding our laws at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level all the time. It's happening right now in your community. And, you know, the issues that you care about you know, each of us has 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 an option. We we can either engage in that process and try and uh, offer perspective that is pro animal or, you know, whatever the issue is that you care about, or choose not to. And if you don't, that vacuum is going to be filled by someone who's probably going to suggest a perspective that you don't agree with or you don't like. So, you know, at some level, I think we all have an obligation to engage in our democracy i mean it, it is what we make of it again i i know how how frustrated people are watching the dysfunction on capitol hill i get that but you know for us um the ballot the ballot initiative process actually was a great example in, in some states there is an opportunity if you go out and collect a huge number of signatures to actually place a proposed law before the voters um, mm. this is a monumental task it's a huge amount of work. Um, we did this uh, in, in our home state of Massachusetts three three separate times. Um, every time it was, you know, a backbreaking effort with with all volunteers, by the way, to go out and collect the signatures. Um, I mean, really, just people made incredible sacrifices, and then we had to 
you know, essentially crowdsource, you know, funding to be able to run a campaign against, you know, powerful gambling operators, essentially, that had, you know, unlimited ability to, to spend against us. And so, you know, th that was, that was a, a very difficult task. But, you know, for us, you know, we, we thought that the Greyhounds not only deserve better, but they deserve uh, people fighting for them in a way that actually can make a dis difference for them. Our, our very first campaign, which, which, which uh, birthed our organization, was in Massachusetts in the 2000, and it was, a, it was a ballot question, like I said, it was a complete grassroots movement. Um, we, we got the signatures really against, against all odds. We got on the ballot, we were outspent many, many times over. Um, and on election day, like Christine said earlier, we lost 51 to 49. And even though that was a, a crushing experience for us, you know, it, it did show us that we had the ability that that ordinary people, the grassroots citizens had the ability to, you know, fight to stand up to this powerful industry and have a chance to win. I mean, we you know, had the election been on the Monday or the Wednesday instead of Tuesday, we very well might have won. So I, I think that was very empowering for us. And so we work at state legislatures. We work with lawmakers who care about these issues. Um, you know, we're very bipartisan. We, we we work with folks on the on the left and the right who you know don't agree on anything except mm -hmm. um, that these are you know the dogs are members of our family and the greyhounds deserve better. Um, when we were, uh, Christine mentioned our, the Florida campaign in, in 2018, Florida voters outlawed greyhound racing uh, with a 69% margin, you know, sweeping victory from one end of the state to the other, shutting down 12 operational dog tracks. Um, the coalition behind that amendment included the League of Women Voters, the most liberal members of the state legislature, uh, the, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, the Democratic attorney general candidate, joining with Laura Trump, Mike Huckabee, Rick Scott, Governor Rick Scott, Pam Bondi. I mean, they're just what there's no other right left coalition that comes together, you know, almost on any issue other than this issue, because people care about dogs. Mm -hmm. People do care about dogs. So, you know, I think we, you know, we work, like I said, in the legislative process, we work in the in in the courts when we have to, we work in the ballot initiative process. Um, and I know that may seem daunting, like how do I get started? How do I engage? Um, you know, I, I think if, you know, find out what's happening with your local, you know, everyone has local elected officials, whether they're, you know, city council members of a board of selectmen. And I promise that they're voting on and, and changing the law and, and making decisions about a lot of issues that you care about. And you know most people don't engage because their their lives are busy. You know they're cynical about the process, but it, it it really the democracy still is capable of bringing about fundamental change. You don't have to be a, a big money money moneyed interest, a big powerful interest. Um, and and like I said, if if you're not engaging in the process, then other people are mm. in ways that you're not going to like. Exactly. That I mean, I went to law school because the Greyhounds needed a lawyer. All the lawyers were on the other side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when we would testify at a hearing, we'd be met with a phalanx of track 
lawyers and lobbyists who would be telling lawmakers absolute, you know, absolutely the wrong thing about what was happening to the dogs. Um, so we needed to meet them where they were. But one thing I would say is, is really important to our success is that we let the dogs speak for themselves. In our first campaign, we, we, we we're learning and we're still learning. We learn every day. We learn by our mistakes, um, quite frankly. Um, we learned that we had to show people the dogs themselves, that they had to identify that these are dogs in my state that need help. And all the statistics about national stuff, you know, just kind of whiz by them maybe. Um, we, we didn't win that year. So we, we, we really took that to heart. And the reason that we decided to keep trying was simple. What would the dogs want? The dogs would want us to keep fighting. There were a lot of people who told us, dry up, you lost, you don't know what you're doing, get out of town. Um, mm -hmm. But I said, I'm going to keep fighting because I know those dogs want to get out of those cages and they don't know the difference between election day and today and mm -hmm. they just want to get out. So I really identify with the dogs. I especially identify with the injuries that they suffer. I have um, had uh, a particularly uh, horrendous thing happen to me. I was run over by a train when I was 26 years old. And because of the top medical care that I was given, I was, I was saved and I was able to get up and walk and talk again. A greyhound who breaks a leg is a dead greyhound. They're worthless. There's no investment made in that dog. So I, I, when I hear and I learn of the greyhounds and what they're going through, I really identify it with it. And that's why when we bring a campaign, we talk about the dogs and their experience. That's really important because as Carrie said, they are the common denominator. No matter what your political scheme is, mm -hmm. you if you're normal, you care about dogs. Yeah. Um, so that's been a real asset to our campaign, letting the dogs speak for themselves through their records, through their stories, through their photos, and also letting lawmakers and voters know we understand the process. We're going to give you facts, and it's up to you to decide. But here are the facts. So we've made it a very straight arrow campaign. And I think I think that is part of the reason we've succeeded because people understand that this is an honest campaign and we are doing this to help dogs. Yeah. And you know, uh, Kyle, so good. I, well, I was just going to say, it's really interesting hearing, uh, you know, that sort of bipartisan connection with dogs, because that's very much like the model that, that a lot of like modern uh, good zoos run off of is like, you know, we have these issues that are very political, like climate change and things like that. But then when you get these people to actually connect with an animal at the zoo, like a polar bear, for example, you know, you, you sort of humanize the issue and, and, and you get them to say like, oh, there's actual, these are actual, uh, you know, living things that are suffering as a result of this issue that, that, you know, is, is way too muddied up in, in politics right now. And that's sort of the, the thing that you've been able to sort of really use to your advantage and, and something that I think that, uh, you know, zoos use to their advantage as, as well. It's very, very hard for, you know, most normal people, as you said, to, to really 
you know, turn a blind eye and just be like, I don't care about this, this living creature. Most, most people do care about, you know, another living organism. And, and when you get them to sort of become face to face with the consequences of something that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily be thinking of it, it, it can be very, very powerful. And, you know, and that's, that's true for lawmakers and everyday people. So we work in the legislative process and we work through the uh, ballot question process. And what you're saying is absolutely true. Um, there's a there's a, com a common humanity that we all share. And when people are given an opportunity to put that humanity into action, they do. You know, I, I think that the reason how, why volunteers have given time to this fight spend spend time with their family or lawmakers have you know fought for this and even use political capital fight for the greyhounds instead of using it you know to help you know some lobbying friend or whatever it is because everyone has genuinely felt like this is the right thing to do i mean i know that seems um i i, I had a lawmaker in florida the, there's so the book is full of so many like strange little details that you know if it hadn't happened, you would never believe they were actually true. But one, you know, just one example, you know, I, I had a lawmaker, uh, sort of pe peculiar fellow named John Tobiah, who brought me into his office one day and said, you know, I want to tell you why I support you. I support you because I go home at night and my daughter thinks I'm a better person than I actually am because I fight for the Greyhounds. Mm. I, and that was such an odd thing for him to say to me, but it was, but it was completely honest. And, mm. and it, it spoke to, you know, th there really was just a sense that this is the right thing to do. And and people who volunteer for this effort, people, lawmakers who fight for it, they feel good about it. It's it's something that, that rewards their life and enriches their life. And another point I just want to make is, Christine said this earlier, about not giving up. Um, I mean, just being willing to fight a hard fight and lose and get up and fight again, and, and keep going has been so essential to us. It's been almost like the secret ingredient to why we, we've made progress. And we brought, we got that from Brooklyn. You know, Brooklyn was only after he came home, he was only with us for a few weeks, about three weeks when he started to limp and we took him into the vet and he was diagnosed with bone cancer. And, you know, from that point forward, we had to decide you know, what was best for him and his he did get an amputation he got chemotherapy um most greyhounds at that point have about a nine month the average lifespan is about nine months um he lived for three glorious years with us they were amazing special really the best time of our lives um he also had suffered uh, after that an fce which is a type of spinal stroke and uh, loss of coordination and again, we, we had to go through a rehabilitation process with him uh, all, you know, after the cancer diagnosis all over again. And you know, that, that, was, that was hard on us, but quite frankly, it made us better people. I know it certainly made me a better person to be, to be just to have to be completely selfless and put him first. And, you know, I, I became his legs. I would carry him outside to relieve himself. And he, and despite all of that, he was happy and he would just sort of, you know, gallop around and, and mm -hmm. he, he's had this incredible disposition. And I think his tenacity to keep living, keep loving, keep keeping open um, was an incredible example for us and the tenacity we needed to keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting, because you know the, the message I would send to 
your listeners is if there's an issue that you really care about, whether it's convincing other stakeholders in a community of something that needs to change or whether it's changing a law or you know, locally at, at the state level, whatever it is, the likelihood is you're not going to win the first time. You know, if, 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 if you can, if, if you write on the issue and you're clever about it and you can bring together enough of a coalition, you know, you can probably get that thing done, but it's at the same time, it's probably going to be harder than you think. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take longer than you think. And you have to be prepared to, you know, go through some of those setbacks and keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's fantastic advice. I, I would, I would love to hear like, you know, cause before this, as you said before, uh, you didn't really have a lot of experience with this entire process. Like what, what surprised you the most about this entire process and like how laws, when you got down into the nitty gritty of actually trying to change laws, like what, what was that like? Well, I think Christine and I will probably give different answers, which we usually do on most things. <laughs> um, my, my answer would be that, uh, it's about people. You know, if, 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 if you want to understand why, you know, everyone hates lobbyists and I understand why, um, you know, they're, you know, the, the lobbying industry is can be kind of like a, a vampire in our society in a lot of ways. But if you want to understand why it works is because uh, the lawmaking process is about people and lobbyists are people that lawmakers like, they become friends with them, they get to know them. They, and so, you know, for us, you know, um, we've had to learn how to listen, how, how, how to listen to lawmakers, how, how to hear their concerns, how to, how to, you know, negotiate differences between lawmakers, how to, you know, it's, it's just like any lawmakers are people just like, just like anyone else. And, and the process, the, the political process and the, and the legislative process is a people driven process. That, that, that's what, that's the thing that I learned that I think was most surprising to me. Christine? Well, I, I completely agree with that, Carrie. Um, for me, um, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. We don't have anything where people can go to the ballot and vote for something. They can vote for candidates. They can't vote on issues. So the ballot question process was completely alien to me. Um, I was a longtime animal activist and when I learned about greyhound racing, I went into my animal activist mode. I went to rallies, I had signs, I, I did stunts, etc. I did not know that something more is needed to actually affect change. You don't want to be holding a sign outside the building. You want to be inside the room at the table negotiating for change. And the way to do that is to understand the process and to let people in that process know that you are someone who has this information that is accurate and that you are a reliable spokesperson. So, you know, this is what what it took to end dog racing. We had to, somebody like me didn't even know what a ballot question was when somebody said, hey, you want to end dog racing? Go on the ballot. I said, what's that? I had no idea. I ended up being the person who wrote the ballot question. So, if you see a problem, just break it down, learn more, and you can do it. Don't be afraid to fail um, because whether it's Greyhound racing or climate change, or you can make a difference and your positive change leads to other positive changes. That's what I believe. So when um, I learned about 
how the laws work and realized I needed to become a lawyer to really help make a change. That's what I did. It wasn't fun, by the way, <laughs> going to law school for four years at night. Um, but I've, that's, I was very committed to the idea. And that doesn't mean all of a sudden I became great at public speaking and I learned to love it. I didn't, but there was nobody else who was going to stand up and speak for the dogs. So if there was a hearing that somebody had to go to, I went and I did my best. And that's what all, that's all you can do. Do your best. Don't be afraid. Come with facts, explain the facts, explain what's happening and people will listen. You know, there, there's a lot of ironies in this, Kyle. Um, you know, it was ironic to learn that sometimes victory is defeat and vice versa. Had had we not lost that first campaign, um, our national nonprofit never would have formed. And I think this story would have been over decades ago. Um, so in a, in a strange way that, you know, that day, which was one of the darkest days of my life, I mean, we felt like we had failed the dogs and dogs were going to suffer and die as, as a result of our failure. That failure ended up being the thing that drove what became a national movement and now an international movement to help these dogs. And, um, and also, you know, Christine mentioned this, uh, our inexperience was an incredible asset. I know that sounds strange, but um, knowing that we didn't know what we were doing and we could come to this with fresh eyes and try to figure it out and be creative and not be afraid to, to lose. And um, that that was an incredible blessing. And, you know, so for, for anyone who cares about some, some issue and want to make a change but feel like they don't have the experience to do it, I would say your inexperience is is a gift and a and a and a tool that that uh, you know you can definitely use to your advantage. Definitely, be be genuine. That's really the key. Be willing to make mistakes. And you know, I would also say I'll give a warning. This is not a popularity contest. You know, when we lost, people were really pissed off. And they they blamed Carrie in particular, <laughs> not so much me, but Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> we had to have the strength and the belief in ourselves. Say, we we could have won. Here's what we need to do better, and that's when we went right into the legislative process that, within weeks, and we passed legislation that required the injury reporting for greyhounds in Massachusetts, which had never before been public record. But now, looking ahead, we would be able to have their records and tell their stories, which we hadn't been able to do. So we we believed in ourselves. And along the way, you know, you can face lawsuits. When uh, Carrie and I were volunteering in the first campaign, we were sued for $10 million for defamation of character by one of the local track owners. That's how seriously he took us. He mm -hmm. wanted us gone. And uh, he is basically trying to um, shut our campaign down by, you know, basically broadcasting the public that we can't be relied upon. And that we are people who will just resort to dirty tricks and don't believe them. Well, as I said before, that when you are genuine, that's a great asset. And we were genuine. And of course, the court looked at 
this claim, found it was a slap suit, and he ended up having to pay our legal costs. But uh, so that was a happy ending, but it certainly was very scary and it mm -hmm. didn't end quickly. So you have to be prepared for things to happen along the way that maybe most normal people would say, okay, that's enough for me, I'm out. But Carrie and I have stayed in all these years and um, we're getting very close here in the United States. We have a federal bill, the Graham Protection Act, um, and we're hoping to pass it in this uh, congressional session. Um, but that's, again, that will not be the end of our story. We're now working in different countries. Australia has 64 dog tracks. It, mm. 64 dog tracks. It's like, it's like the United States was when we first started. Um, Greyhound racing is, is quite thriving in Australia and the United Kingdom, there are fewer tracks, 24, but the problems are the same, the confinement, mm -hmm. the injuries, the deaths, the drugging. There's a common denominator across this industry. They all go by the same handbook. Um, and we're hoping that we can make a difference by bringing our, our campaign, our campaigning, um, and our friendship, uh, to groups across the country across the world rather uh, and show them that there's a path there's a path for the, their greyhounds too mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's fantastic and i think it might be helpful for people to because you you know you mentioned this is a long arduous process to get to where you are now do you want to sort of give an idea give people an idea of like sort of where you started versus you know i, I saw like you have like the victories page on your on your uh, website uh, maybe give an idea of a brief timeline of of what this actually looked like. Yeah, well, our our first campaign was in the year two thousand, and there were you know grassroots advocates that were fighting for greyhounds, you know, a decade or two before that. And so, um, you know, that this is you know again, this is something that that you measure uh, in years or even decades when you're trying to make fundamental changes. Um, uh, in Florida, just as an example, um, you know, I, I spent uh, almost a decade living in Florida part-time, um, fighting for greyhounds, trying to make reforms in the legislature um, before, you know, Amendment 13, the measure that outlawed greyhound racing ultimately um, went on the ballot in 2018. Um, in Massachusetts, our home state, you know, we've talked about this campaign that lost, that was in the year 2000. Uh, we were not able to come back and outlaw greyhound racing. We came back to the ballot again uh, eight years later in 2008. So, you know, again, there were eight years of dogs living in cages, dogs dying on the track, dogs being drugged. Um, you know, all, all of those problems continued. And even today, you know, even, even though we've gone from about 70 operational dog tracks to two, both in West Virginia, um, we're still fighting to close this industry out completely. So, you know, it's, and I, I would say, you know, I, I understand, you know, in a society where we want instant gratification, you know, I would love to be able to tell you, you know, oh, if there's an issue you care about, you know, we'll work on it for a couple of years and it'll magically solve itself, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. Four easy uh, steps. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, that, that's not the case. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, this is a multi-billion dollar industry that, that, you know, it starts started in the 1920s. Um, and so to see this industry and, and the, the reason we wrote the book, the book, the way we did is Brooklyn was born only a few weeks after the voters in Massachusetts outlawed Greyhound racing in 2008. And he passed away, uh, you know, by the time he passed away 13 years later, 
Greyhound racing had essentially been almost completely outlawed in the United States. Florida had been abolished. Um, and, and in fact, a few weeks after he passed, the company that owns the final two tracks in West Virginia publicly came out and said it wanted to end Greyhound racing. It was time for this to go. It wanted out. And so, you know, that is a huge amount of change mm. that happened in the, in the life of one dog. That's that's the way I I, I, I would put it is, you know, if, if you want to make a fundamental change on an issue that you care about, um, and you can view it in a 10-year chunk or a 15-year chunk, and you're willing to fight, there's a very good chance you can get that done. Um, and, and in the grand scheme of, 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 of history, what, 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 is, what is 20 years? It's, it's the blink mm -hmm. of an eye, really. So, um, you know, that I, I, it, but, but it does take perseverance and persistence. And, uh, and you, know, you have to you know, just stay motivated and, and fixed on that mission and, and not give up. Yeah. To me, it's just really simple. I always remember I'm working for the dogs and that's it. Um, the slings and arrows of public opinion and whether we you know, have a lot of money uh, coming in from our supporters or we're, we're going broke, uh, mm -hmm. I need to keep fighting for the dogs. Um, so, you know, our organization is, is, is really just a, a grassroots organization that has managed to stay in place these 20 plus years um, just by virtue of hard work and showing people here's what we want to do please support us and we've had results so we are a little bit different than most nonprofits in that we're trying to put ourselves out of business um that's our goal mm -hmm. so that's what we we hope to do and we're very close here in the united states but just as when we thought our goal was to end dog racing in massachusetts that it became national now mm -hmm. international so the 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 breadth of our work keeps growing. So I'm not exactly sure when retirement's coming, but um, I know there's a lot more work to do and we want to do it. Yeah, that's great. And and now that you have this sort of this this book and you guys have accomplished so much that is, you know, in this book now, like and it's and I sort of uh, view it partly as a as a playbook that people can use for fighting some of these issues that are uh you know, it seemingly impossible to, to, you know, come out on the other side victorious as, as you guys have done many times. What is the sort of secret sauce as far as like what you guys have used and, and key takeaways that you feel like people could take from this book and actually use to, to really affect, affect change? You know, we felt an obligation to write this book. I mean, we didn't wake up one day and say, hey, let's, you know, let's write a book. And like, that wasn't, that wasn't the spirit of this. It was, you know, we lived through something historic that, that we helped lead, but, but truly was um, something that so many people came together, you know, you know, people who don't agree on anything, who have vastly different life experiences, and, and people who gave, it, was a it truly was a stone soup approach where everyone came and, and added something to this, and, and the, the whole became larger than the sum of its parts. And, and it, was, it, it was so incredible. And so, you know, um, that we felt an obligation to, to put this on paper and put it out there in the world. And I do hope people will read it and um, it will inspire them to make some positive change um, in a way that they care about. 
Um, in, in terms of secret sauce, I mean, uh, you know, we've talked about some of these things already, but not giving up, that, that was a secret for us. Uh, embracing our inexperience certainly was a secret for us. Um, remaining uh, committed to the mission, you know, letting the mission be the boss. I mean, it's all, always thinking what, you know, our job is to represent the dogs. How, how do we best do that in this case? Um, you know, and, and uh, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's been an incredible journey and, and uh, we're very blessed to, to be a part of it. And uh, we wanted to share the story. So but that would be my answer. Well, to me, there's, it's not really a secret. Everybody knows it. Do, do what you love, you know, do what you believe in. Life becomes much simpler when you actually just focus on the important things. And to me, um, fighting against cruelty is a huge part of who I am. And I'm also a problem solver. So I knew of the problem. I saw so many issues within the problem that I cared about. Um, but how, what to do about it, I don't know. So to then be then open myself up to learn and and then go from there all at this all being led by my belief that i wanted to find a way to help stop cruelty it's very simple um so that's not what everybody wants to do that's what i wanted to do um so what's my path how do i do it what does it take and when i found out about greyhound racing and that th this kind of activity was happening man's best friend, quote unquote, I said, well, this is outrageous. Somebody has to do something about it. And then nobody was. So I said, okay, I will. Carrie said, okay, I will. So we came together and that's how Great TK USA was born. And uh, we started with the two of us, a reverend and a veterinarian. So each of us had a role to play <laughs> in the formation of, of this organization. And we've just tried to do the best we can every day. We make mistakes, but we recover from those. We learn from those and we just keep going. And honestly, if you just st stay focused and stay true to what you believe, you really can't go wrong. You know, I'll, I'll leave you with one, one final thought, Kyle, which is, you know, one big takeaway observation for me in writing the book and thinking about it and sitting sitting with the last 25 years was that uh, not this in, on one hand this industry really did act as a corruptive force. I mean, it corrupted almost everyone it came in contact with. Um, it put people in the industry in a bad situation. There were good people in the industry who ended up being in bad situations. I mean, it it it, it corrupted. It tried to corrupt the adoption community. I mean, it, it really was like a corruptive force that just seeped through everything. At the same time, that drew out the better parts of who we are in its opposition. And I I, I think that 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 to me is a very powerful. Um, realization and something that I didn't recognize as it was happening. But when you look back on it, um, there just were so many people. It, it, it truly became like a like a mosaic of people sacrificing and 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 just helping and fighting for these dogs in in so many ways. And that gives me hope because I I, I think uh, in some ways you know uh, that's who we are as a species. We we are. 
all of all of the the bad parts of the greyhound racing industry that is in us and all, all, all of the destruction and all of that and um all of all of the the beauty and 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 sacrifice that came out of of the opposition to that so um yeah it's uh it's been a strange strange ride i'll yeah. say that yeah and 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 you guys are are outstanding people i'm sure everybody listening is uh you know uh in awe of what you guys have done. It's, it's truly fantastic. Um, I, I will definitely, you know, a link, uh, to, I recommend everybody get the book. It's, uh, I've been plugging through it. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, so many great stories as you, some of them that you've mentioned already, uh, if people want to sort of support and, and get involved and, uh, follow you guys, how, how, how should they do that? Well, we're on, we're on all social media at grade 2k USA. And our website is great2kusa.org. Um, and as I say, we're, we're just a big old grassroots organization. And whatever people can do to help and volunteer, they can make phone calls. They can call their lawmaker. They can write their lawmaker. They can hold a, uh, an information booth. There's so many things people can do to help. And no matter what your skill, I bet you can use it to benefit greyhounds. So an artist could make a painting that we could put in an auction, for instance. Um, so people have always said, well, what could I do? Well, talk to me. I'll, I'll tell you what you can do. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fantastic. I'll link everything, uh, social media, website, book, all that stuff in the in the show notes for people to check out. Um, it's an outstanding, outstanding, uh, you know, issue and it's it's you know you guys are outstanding people so i definitely recommend people get involved if if they wish uh i would i would love to myself uh as i go down in a couple minutes and go uh, pet my dog uh it's uh yeah it's absolutely outstanding uh carrie and christine thank you so much for coming on and so much for everything that you do thanks for having us yeah and uh for everybody listening uh until next time we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.